This is Owen Calver in Dublin. This is Andrew Duncan in London. And this is uh, the third episode of our marvellous podcast, Double Booked. Double Booked is a podcast about children's books, graphic novels, comics, books, libraries, librarians, storytelling, books, bookshops, bookshelves, secondhand bookshops and secondhand librarians. And also those little things they hang from the ceiling in bookshops. I'm not sure what they're called. The mobile. We'll get to those. My My plan with the list is I'm just adding one every episode. And so by the time we do the 100th podcast, I'll just read the list and then just go, well, that's that's it for the 100th that's episode. Um, right so right in next week. That would, that would and then all the complaints will be, you did not mention mobiles, as you yeah. promised. Yeah, or know <laughs> what they were called. Which, yeah, no. I don't yeah. Know, which is right, I don't <laughs> yeah. know if that's... Um, I suppose well, before I come on, I should look up... The dangly things. All the things yeah. that I think are just called things. Yeah. You know, those things. Alexa, what were the dangly things called? You know, the dangly thing. Don't ever say that. That's fine. To That's fine. Um, now, I should introduce uh, my comrade in typewriters, um, Mr. Andrew Duncan. And, and every week I'm going to tell something new about you. Oh, cracky. Okay. Like the basics are, you know, 8 million copies sold worldwide, 60 books and graphic novels. But people might not know uh, that you adapted Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Um, I did. From the you- movie script to be a book. Absolutely. Yeah, and how did how did that come about? It came about because there's two really, really shy filmmakers who were uh, Guy Ritchie and um, Matthew Vaughan came into yeah. Sophie's office. Sophie is our mutual agent, and we're saying, "Oh, we've we've shot this film, and we think it's going to be quite cool, quite cool." And um, we really want to get a book deal because we think a book deal will help um get the distributor for the uk for a really really small film that no one's heard of and we said what's it called and they said lock stock and two smoking barrels and we said no we've not heard of that and they said no no one's heard of it but we just really want to oh do you think you can do that and sophie got them a book deal and she got them a book deal in the uk and in germany and japan and i was under some mad deadline like you have to turn the film script into a novel in uh, you know four weeks or something crazy uh, which we did and during that kind of six-month period of me doing that before the book came out, of course, the film just went stellar and they became mega superstars of directing and producing and have done The Kingsman and whole loads of franchises since then. And now they don't sit on Sophie's sofa saying, could you get us a book deal? Uh, I, I was going to end that segment with a little joke and whatever happened to those guys? And you've just ruined that for me now. I can't do I've that. Stepped, I've told. stepped all over that. Exactly. You've I'm, stepped I'm on not, my, I'm I'm not remotely... If there's no remorse, I can you, well, and you're not lying because I can no, see no, into your no, eyes. Grinning. There's no, there's no, the there's remorseless, no remorseless, remorseless, remorseless monster. Um, they are. Now we also have to say thank you. We have to say thank you to um, Albert uh, Drandoff, who is uh, a lovely French person, and we have to say thank you to the Second Chance Schools um, Graphic Novel Prize because Illegal um, won that. Uh, just last month, and we're allowed to announce it now, wow. and, they, and we won it. It's voted for by school kids of teenage years in a network of 100 schools across France, and there was a short list of four that uh, they selected, and then Illegal was voted um, top, and we, we won that award. I know last time we were on here, you were saying it was the last ever award Illegal had won, but fate has proved you wrong, so please say that again this week. This is absolutely the last award possible for Illegal <laughs> So, uh, merci tout le monde, les Where jeunes hommes et les jeunes filles. We're very, 
very delighted to get that award. And can I just say, Andrew, can, could I, could I have one of the awards? You know, all the awards I never see you show them to me and you vow to send them. The award for this. Absolutely. I will send it. I'll get them to send this to you because the award for this is um, eight stray cats that you have to look after for the rest of your life. So I will happily get them sent to your address in Ireland. It's it's a very friend of French award, isn't it? Which is, uh, you know, it's partly nice, partly sad. uh, um, And also we will say that the graphic novel that won it, obviously we know it as illegal, but in France it's called Migrant because when they were going to publish Illegal in France, they said that if they published it under our title of Illegal, everybody would think it was a graphic novel about a bank job. Everybody would assume it was some kind of caper. Um, I thought at the time that a book that was a bank job and a caper might sell much better than a book that's about uh, migrants crossing the Mediterranean Sea. So I wasn't necessarily personally against that, but they wouldn't do it. So it's published as migrant. How wrong you were. How wrong you were Hmm? because... uh... Migrant has been incredibly successful in France and, and all over Europe. I suppose this, it's a universal issue, uh, this um, human tragedy of kids crossing the med. And, and sadly, shaking. more in the news again recently, in recent months, than, yeah. than, uh, than for a long time. Yeah, it, it, it does seem, it's one of those problems we, I remember us uh, talking about it and saying, well, it'll probably be solved by the time the book comes out. You know, it's such a horrible thing. It'll probably be all sorted out and this will be like a history book. Yeah. But sadly, it is. It certainly is not. So, but anyway, on to somewhat. Shall, shall I tell you what we're doing? Shall I tell you what we're doing this episode? It would be nice Uh-oh. to give me a little. I'll give you, I'll give you some hints. You are talking about, for, for me, myself and I, you have chosen the classic, classic graphic novel, uh, which is our first kind of comic feature on the program of, of V for Vendetta by Alan Moore and artist David Lloyd, which is fantastic. And you're going to be talking about your love for that. Um, Then we have a little bit of mad science. We have a fantastic guest in the shape of award-winning million-selling Jenny Valentine, who's going to be talking about... Multi-award. Many, many, many award-winning, who's going to be talking about her new series, A Girl Called Joy, um, and uh, talking about her... Uh, uh, writing process um, and then Fantastic. after that we have it was rubbish but I loved it and this week um, I am championing the late 60s Spider-Man cartoons which I loved as a kid but are yeah. absolutely rubbish pants uh, I feel pants. we could probably do a whole podcast on it was rubbish but I loved it. But, um, and then and then we have Agony Owen we have Agony Owen because letters have been pouring into um, double booked podcast at aol.com um, from Boring. from people begging, asking, pleading. I don't know why. I don't know why they would come to us, but yeah. asking for literary advice. Um, so you'll be you'll, your brain, your fine tuned brain, be just, put to test. They see my uh, author photo and they say, "Well, if anyone knows about abject failure, it's that guy. He's he's been through." <laughs> I think you may have neglected to mention mad science. So are you mad sciencing? Yeah, you know, we've got a little bit of mad science. I thought um, I apologize if I didn't mention it. We've got a little mad science story about mysterious power cuts in a Scottish village and how yeah. that was solved. Oh, it's a bit of a Scooby-Doo. It's a bit of a Scooby-Doo. It's a bit of a Scooby-Doo story. I was going to say, could you do some of it? in right. Scottish Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> It'll take a long time to read it. <laughs> But yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, the letters will be pouring in. No, no, no. I'll, I'll throw in. Do letters don't pour every, in? Every time, every time we get in. So oh. now, now we have our jingle, and then we'll have our V for Vendetta if you're ready, and you're ready to tell us about your great love of that. Hmm. I wonder what they've picked this time. It's me, my shelf, and I. 
Um, I D for Vendetta by Alan Moore. I'm holding up the the latest uh, edition, which would be the DC Black label, um, but it actually starts out as black and white strip, as I'm as I'm sure you know. Uh, but uh, so V for Vendetta is kind of a take on Orwell's uh, 1984. I think you would agree it's, it's very Orwellian. Yes. Uh, and yes. if you cross that with the Scarlet Pimpernel, maybe which is the, the theatrical side of it, you get. And then you add in a big dash of gloom and uh, dystopia. You get Alan Moore, who is usually such a cheery guy, but in this case, he went a little bit dark. And I think why it's so important for me, totally apart from the fact that it's an amazing uh, graphic novel and the artwork perfectly complements the subject matter, is that it was a, a gateway for me back into graphic novels as an adult um, I'd always loved graphic novels as, as a child and I continue to love them as an adult, but it was a little bit of a nostalgic trip for me in that it used to bring me back to when I was a child and I was reading about the Justice League in, in the hundred pages or I was reading about, you know, your friendly neighborhood Spidey. But this is a true graphic novel for grown-ups. So I was able to reconnect with the art form uh, at my own kind of intellectual level, if you like, uh, and enjoy it, not just as a little uh, treat for myself because I was feeling a bit low and I wanted to go back to my childhood uh, years, like a like a 13-year-old watching Barney. Uh, this was the real thing. You know, I was enjoying this piece of uh, fantastic um, literature. And I remember getting it. I went to London uh, with my wife, Jackie, who was my girlfriend at the time and uh, my fiance, actually. And we went over there and I had so I went to a Forbidden Planet. And now we didn't have a Forbidden Planet in Dublin at the time. What? What? No. Uh, so this was like a massive treat for me. How I this is this is how I got my comics, Andrew, in Dublin at the time. There was a guy with a kiosk on O'Connell Street in Dublin who might be there. So I would go to Dublin once every two months with my mom to see her sister. And my brother and I, Paul, would trudge into O'Connell Street and maybe this guy would be there and maybe he would have Creepy or Eerie or Vampirella, which were which you really loved. And, uh, and in this particular case, the art, and I don't know is this because it was coloured after uh, it was colourised or because it was printed so often or in the edition I got, Certainly, it was on newsprint, so it's very, very fragile paper, but that really suited the book. Originally, in, in, in Warrior, when it was published as, as chapter by chapters on, on um, month by month over two or three years, up to, I think, like issue 26 or something, it was black and white. It, Warrior was printed on very, very rough toilet paper, and it was very just stark black and white. And then when DC yeah. got the rights and collected it, um, they added some very muted kind of colouring, which doesn't colour it up to kind of superhero levels, but just adds a little bit of colouring and an effort, I think, to make it more yeah. accessible to, to mainstream. But it looks like that was done on purpose and not for financial reasons, but to give it that kind of atmospheric, down at heel, dystopian future uh, where, uh, you know, the country is ruled by the homophobic Norse fire political party who just exterminate their opponents and slap them into con- uh, concentration camps. And also 
what I liked about it is a horrible thing is there's no real hero. Like V is, this is the character who dresses up and goes around uh, taking revenge on the people who tortured him in the concentration camps who are now at the top uh, of the, the ruling political party. And it's a very theatrical way of doing it. Um, but he's not, he's not a true, he's not totally a hero his, you know, he's trying to convert people to anarchy. He's not trying to bring a, a peaceful rule uh, to the country. No, and his revenges are very vindictive. I mean, it is, it is a proper vendetta. He's not giving anyone the option of resigning or leaving quietly. He is, he is out for revenge. When you learn his backstory, you understand that that's completely justified. But, but he is, um, you know, out for violent revenge. But at the, at the time when you were reading comic books, that was quite unusual. I mean, everything everybody's gone dark now. I mean, there's a lot of you, if you want revenge stories or antiheroes, you can find them even in my own books and, and anywhere. But but at the time, if you were reading comic book, it was usually very very clear who the hero was and very understandable why they were the hero. Uh, and they usually had a code where they would not kill anybody. Sure. A lot of them would not even use Batman, wouldn't use guns for a long time. So uh, to read this book where the hero did wear a mask and did look like he was supposed to be a superhero, but then acted in a way uh, that was very unheroic and even converted people to his cause in a way that would be kind of called radicalizing now. Uh, that was quite... Not just like it took me a while to get to grips with it and to realize that when I finish this book, I'm not going to understand everything or I'm not going to be squarely on one person's side or another. But all I will realize is that the world is not a safe place. Uh, so it didn't take away from my enjoyment and it really, really uh, impacted me. And I think it was one of the first ones. I, I mean, I think Alan Moore is a genius and we've talked about him before. You you know more about uh, Uncle Al than I do. I love Alan Moore. Alan Moore is a huge writing hero of mine. He's fantastic. Um, and, and I just say, when you're just mentioning radicalization, that of course, um, particularly probably maybe more in the UK than kind of uh, Alan Moore. Of course, the, the V mask is a Guy Fawkes mask. Guy Fawkes yeah. is famous for being a failed terrorist to the extent that he wanted to blow up Parliament and he got caught and, and he didn't succeed. But V very much kind of takes on that disguise and takes on that mantle and, without giving away any spoilers, very much does succeed um, at redoing it. So you have to remember that when Uncle Alan was writing that, when there was that imagery, that you had uh, various terrorist things happening in the 1980s, but Uncle Alan had taken someone and actually made someone wearing a terrorist mask. Okay, a terrorist mask from, um, you know, 300 years ago, but made them the hero of his of his story. Yeah. And also what's amazing about the what's amazing about the mask is that it has become um, genuinely in the real world. The V mask as trademarked by Warner Brothers, etc., has become a symbol of international um, protest. It was used by protesters in China, it's been used by protesters in Hong Kong, it's been used by protesters all around the world. So that kind of idea of, as a writer, casting a spell, you know, spelling, um, so Uncle Alan gets a blank piece of paper and he writes V for Vendetta on it, which, as you've already said, is a kind of mantra, a manifesto to rise up and either have anarchy or to overthrow your oppressors. And now in the real world, all over the world, those V masks are sold in the hundreds of thousands to people who want to remain anonymous on CCTV cameras as they protest about things that they care about. So in, in that way, Alan has really kind of changed the world and given people tools to actually protest just as V does, which is 
is amazing. It is it's kind of amazing. And there's very few writers or artists who can claim to have done something like this. And it's funny you use the word anonymous there because I think anonymous use it as their symbol yeah. as well. Don't yeah. they? When they when they have so, a spokesman, they, he always wears the V mask. So so that's it really. Uh, and I would urge you to go, if you haven't read that, and I suspect most people who are listening to me and you and the likes of us, as we say here in Ireland, will know this book and possibly will already have read it but it is a book that re- bears repeated uh re-readings and and the beauty of a graphic novel is that you can you can read it but also you can just pour over uh, each frame and marvel how uh they are done and the artwork because david lloyd is fantastic also so he's great um, and as a free as a free plug on v for vendetta there's a lovely um cartoon and comic museum called the cartoon museum in london which is at 63 well street and they currently running until halloween uh 2021 they have an exhibition on called v for vendetta behind the mask and it's a big room full of david lloyd's fantastic original artwork and some installation pieces and a video interview with david lloyd all about the making of v and the making of the comic strip so if you're in london and you can get into the cartoon museum in well street uh it's well worth a look wow excellent i will actually hopefully i'm hoping to get over to see you next month so um it'd be great if we could get you know the covid masks we just we get v for vendetta covid masks that would be fantastic if we could if we could manage that Hello, you're true to the weird science department. Have you tried turning it on and off again? Well, there's no, there's no, there's no beating V for Vendetta, but this is this is S for Starling. So here, here's a here's a kind of mystery story. Um, this is from the Fortean Times a couple of months ago, who is a great magazine that has has all kinds of fantastic, fantastic weird stories in it. The mystery of an unexplained series of power outages across a small Scottish town has been solved after video footage revealed the cause to be starlings dancing on the power lines. At dusk, the combined mass of starlings in a murmuration was found to be responsible for bouncing overhead electricity lines, which caused circuits to trip, thus bringing about interruptions to the electricity supply. The Starling's antics were first discovered by Neil MacDonald, a Scottish power engineer who had been sent out to investigate the mysterious power cuts. He cracked the case while on an evening walk to check the lines, using a camera phone to capture the spectacle. He says, In all my 14 years working for the energy networks, I've never seen anything like this. For all the birds looked small, but the sheer number of them caused the wires to bounce up and down as they danced on and off. Thousands of birds way down the landlines every time they landed en masse and the murmuration would set off together and trigger an outage. The Starling said, and we would have got away with it if it wasn't for you and those pesky kids. <laughs> that is very strange. I, I feel that it's, that's the kind of thing where it's only a matter of time before some London artist uh, turns it into an installation somewhere. He manages to get them uh, to do murmurations on command. So uh, someone from... Hackney maybe will and that'll be what so do they know why the starlings are doing this is it just is it like a start well i think the starlings are doing it deliberately aren't they the scarlet starlings are doing it deliberately that's why they're doing it some super villain starling man let's call him just for now is training them to do it with a view to an attack on a major city to hold it to ransom he's going to go along and bounce up and down on your power lines not not the metaphor and then there'll be outages and he can demand any amount of packets of jammy dodgers he wants jammy dodgers 
Jaffa cakes, bourbons, the world, the biscuit industry will be at his mercy. I just wasn't speaking there. I was wondering how long you could keep that going for. And now I realize <laughs> ad infinitum just, forever. I could see you nodding forever. off. That's the only reason I stopped. No, I could just but, see but, your eyes closed. In, but seriously, please do not give away good ideas like that on the airwaves. We could have got a trilogy deal from Starling Man and the Jammy Dodgers. I feel, Starling Man. I, I feel we could. So uh, is this is this happening? If this ha- starts happening all over the world, I will suspect a conspiracy. And actually, it's a lot more believable than some of the conspiracies uh, that are doing the rounds these days. So, uh, Starling Man, I'm already it, it's it's believable and and also true. <laughs> just just <laughs> it's an actual thing that happened before we before we shunt it into the more believable. Is it a believable conspiracy or not? It is. Actually it is it's a real. It's so a we real don't thing. we don't know about Starling Man, but we suspect Starling Man. Well, I'm seeing the costume. I feel that the costume would definitely have wings. That yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. would lift his arms out, and these wings would unfurl. Yeah, he would have to have some kind of giant nets, and then the starlings swoop under him, and at his command, as he's whistling, <laughs> they, they would they would carry him off, wouldn't they? Like we that? really should video this because people are missing the oh, glory yeah. of Andrew Duncan being borne aloft by imaginary starlings. <laughs> there would have to be. <laughs> And his fa- he would have to have one favourite who was called Clarice, Clarice Starling. It's like, this yeah. is right in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clarice Starling. Yeah, absolutely. Like that. Clarice oh, and her, her, her dad, Clarence, who has a bad heart and they need the money to, for an operation. Oh, it's brilliant. There we go. Yeah. And then they land at their secret headquarters, which is a farm somewhere in the back. You just see lots of sheep walking around with gags, <laughs> just their mouths. <laughs> glued shut welcome to the part of the show we invite writers to we really love them and we know you love them too it is time now for our amazing guest and this week we have uh, jenny valentine and just to fill you in on jenny's backstory not the whole backstory because some of it is a little shady but the stuff that's fit for public consumption she's in the war i looked this up on wikipedia uh stuff <laughs> Andrew is holding up a really rude. I looked this up on Wikipedia, and Jenny is apparently an award-winning uh, author for, for young adults. And her first novel won the Guardian Prize in 2007, which is very annoying. I looked up me and Andrew on Wikipedia, and it said they claim to be friends with Jenny Valentine. So we need, we need that confirmed. That I we need are to look you up on Wikipedia, but I haven't done my research. So there was there was actually 14.7 million uh articles about jenny valentine so you down towards the end of that did, list did you read it, all of them no did you read all of them no i read 13 million and then it started <laughs> there was apparently a second uh, jenny valentine who was married to one of the chilean miners who was stuck down that mine so there's a few <laughs> articles about her but that came in at about 13.9 million so uh the rest of them are are all jenny so um other books include broken soup fire color one uh, Iggy and me, and of course her new series, which is all about a girl called Joy, uh, which is uh, fantastic. So welcome to Double Book, Jenny. Thank you so much. It's very exciting to uh, be here with you, kind of here with you. Um, I know. I've missed you. I've missed you both. Where are you speaking to us from, Jenny? I am speaking to you from Wales, from oh, quite wet, um, but very beautiful. So we, have, we have three different countries. Do we? We have three different countries. Yeah, I'm in. Well, I'm. I'm in Narnia. I'm in Narnia. Narnia. Andrew, <laughs> Andrew's in Middle Earth, and you're in Wales, and all of those are fictional. <laughs> Your new series is yes. is a girl called Joy, and and I've read that and enjoyed that with my uh, with my daughter Lexi. It seemed to me that you were 
probably quite rightly deliberately setting out to write something that was uh, an antidote to a lot of the woe and misery that's around in the real world and something that was full of uh, positive things. Is is there any truth in that? I, it, that's that with this interview is now over. That's, that's it in a nutshell. Exactly. That's exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I was, I was um, in the house and I was, I was actually, I was thinking about children. I've never written a middle grade book before. And I was thinking, you know, about kids of that age and what they were having to put up with or live through or, you know, experience without really necessarily fully understanding what was going on. And also it was Brexit as well. It was that, it was just kind of a, a perfect storm of rubbish stuff happening and um, I didn't want to, I suppose the usual middle grade book, you know, a child lives a small life and discovers a huge world of adventure. So I just did it backwards. I mean, having said yeah. all of that, I didn't realise I was doing these things until after I'd done them, because that's kind of how it works, isn't it? But I wanted to write about a child who had seen the world and was now no longer able to see the world in the same way. And yeah, she's an optimist. I read Pollyanna for research and then I thought I must make her less irritating than Pollyanna. Well, she's very likable. She's a very, yeah, yeah. she's very positive, but she's a very likable character because she sees the humour in things and she sees where things are slightly ridiculous. And she is, at least at the beginning, slightly disappointed to be not living that kind of travelling life, although she finds, uh, you know, she, she finds the positive side of, of everything around her. Yeah, she does. And, um, and the other thing I was setting out to do, I suppose, was write about um what is uh, everyday magic is is the phrase i suppose it just that the, the kids that were living in our reality now didn't necessarily um know that they had the resources to make it as positive an experience as they possibly could and that's what joy does she's just an optimist she doesn't have a superpower she says she doesn't really have a superpower except she kind of does um by refusing to be bowed by things it made me really cheerful. It yeah. made me feel very cheerful while I was writing it. I've actually written three now, so I'm done being cheerful. I'm stopped. Well, number two's just just come out. Number two's just come out. Uh, yeah, so, number two's uh, out, and number three is um, I've I've done the first draft of number three, so that will be out next year. I was really um, I don't I, I, when I read about the parents' journey in the first book, that kind of struck a real chord with me. You know, these two. Um, socialist uh, travelers who were kind of forced by circumstance to move back in with uh, yeah. a very strict dad. And I read that horrified. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and that is such, that's a real thing though. There's a lot of people, you know, maybe slightly younger than me that had just had to move home, whether it's property prices, whether it's, you know, the travel money running out. And just to be forced to make that soul-crushing decision of moving back in um, with the yeah, parents. So was that just one, a fictional device or is that something you had encountered or people you knew? Um, well, it, it was it was it was mostly a fictional device. Um, and actually I was I would I did it and the reason they moved back is because um, Joy's grandfather is actually on his own and quite vulnerable. So it was a sort of it was a it was a um, it was a charitable act in one way. It wasn't out of necessity necessarily, but obviously the effects are the same. Um, and I suppose part of me thought that this is, you know, one of the other things that happened to us all in lockdown is that our, that epidemic of loneliness just got bigger and bigger and wider and old people were really isolated. Um, 
And I just, I, I think that was just in my mind. I mean, I think, yeah, between my children leaving home and and my my father's not alive anymore, but between my children moving home, leaving home and my mum getting old, seems like about 30 seconds of kind of dizzying freedom. And now, now it's kind of... Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, there's there's a lovely line paragraph in there about that where the mum says that she couldn't bear to think of her dad being alone, and that's the reason that they they moved back to look after him, and and after he had a fall, and I think that will resonate with loads and loads of parents reading it because Owen and I are both yeah, kind of both. looking after us to a certain degree. You know, parents as as you kind of get older and people live longer, I think that's a more and more common uh, common problem, and for that character to give up their life to that to have that pull where they want they really do want to go back and look after her dad is is something that's really um going to strike a chord yeah and i think culturally our country we don't really have that you know it's not ingrained in our culture it is optional but in many cultures and and i mean you know joy's lived in some of them that's just what happens the, the el- your elders yeah. are in the heart of the family they're in the heart of the house they're still the, actually the most powerful members of the family then it's not a question of being visited once every two weeks or whatever. Absolutely. I mean, when I talk to my parents about it, well, when my dad was alive, they just, the grandmother lived in one of the siblings or the siblings' houses and was in the corner by the fireplace. And, yeah. and that was the way it was. But that's not that's not the way it is anymore, uh, which I think is probably not great. But it's certainly as your society gets richer, the older people get shunted to the side. Is, is it wealth? Is, that it, really... is it kind of individualism or whatever that word is? It's a kind of, you know, I am the most important person in my universe and I don't have to sacrifice things for anyone. And actually family means more than that. And these this, these books are really about family. Because in a world, in, there's a lot of dystopia and misery in fiction at the moment. So it's great to have a little a little ray of joy uh, in there or a little trilogy of joy. <laughs> in there. Three little and, rays uh... of joy. <laughs> Three little raisins, yeah, just I'm like me, Seamus find her annoying, and Andrew. I was worrying a little. I know. Can can you do a reading for us? Uh, I can. Jenny, I can. Or, I can. Or, um, or which can you give us a little intro and? Yes, I'll give you a little intro. I'm reading. From. I'm going to read to you for a minute from the first Joy book, which is called originally A Girl Called Joy. Um. So so Joy has moved back from um her many places of um of delight um to the very boring 48 plane tree gardens with her granddad and she um and her sister claude who i love and who is quite cynical um have gone to school for the very first time because they've been homeschooled all their lives and her teacher and nemesis um is called mrs hunter and i'm just going to read a tiny bit about um Joy's relationship with Mrs Hunter. I'm pretty sure that every single one of my new teacher's sentences starts with the word no, especially if the sentence in question is directed at me. Mrs Hunter says that I am bad at listening and bad at keeping quiet and bad at reaching my full potential. She is all over the things I'm bad at. I think she is focusing too much on those and that she would like me a whole lot more if she thought about what I'm actually good at. When I dare to make this suggestion, she looks like I have tried to feed her rotten fish while flicking hot chilli powder in her eye. She pulls the same rotten fish with chilli face when I tell her that reaching your full potential is technically impossible, because potential is always and only about what happens next. 
It is exactly the same as the end of the rainbow, which Claude has been reminding me since I was four years old that you can't actually reach. This fact about potential is what I would call interesting and Mrs Hunter would call cheeky. Cheeky is one of her top ten favourite words to use about me. I'm trying not to remember the other nine. It is hard being the school version of me. I don't know how I'm supposed to spend another second sitting still and being quiet and keeping my shoes on at all times and not laughing at funny things. The thought of weeks and weeks of school fills me with absolute dread. These days I find myself wishing for moving day to come, even though I know full well that there is going to be no such thing. The end. That's joy being slightly less Thank than you. positive for a change. That's that that is it's so great. And also Claire Lefebvre has done an amazing job. Um, Hasn't she just? Yeah. And the, yeah. I mean the, there's a very beautiful big oak tree in the first book and she has drawn the most beautiful tree. Um, yeah, I love that she's doing the books. And, and, and Joy 3 is, um, there's quite a lot of astronomy in Joy 3, so I'm really looking forward to her, um, her work on that. Can you talk to us about your process? What's your process when you're approaching a new book for the first time and planning, not planning, and characters, and what do you, what, what's your approach? Because we have a lot of listeners that are, write their own stuff a lot of listeners that just love reading books that are fascinated by the behind the scenes how people get stuff done um i i i love the word process for a start because it makes it sound like there is some kind of you know um premeditation and process around the whole shambles that is the searching out for something i'm i'm just at the beginning of something now and um and i you know i flounder around an awful lot and trying to find the beginning of something. I don't plot my books ever. Um, um, I used to make a virtue of that because I thought it was, I mean, it is, it, it does make writing really exciting because I don't know what's going to happen next. It also makes writing incredibly infuriating because I don't know what is going to happen next. So um, I also just know that I, I can't really do it. If I try, it never turns out the way I was expecting. Um, so I just begin. I'm sure other writers say that to you. Every, everybody seems to have their own particular way of doing things. Of course, that's what makes it interesting. Everybody has their own method, and if it works for them, then do you it plot, works for them. Do you plan things? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, it's very loose plot. I would have maybe two pages of a plot, and once I get the main skeleton, then I go. But I don't feel confident enough to go until I have that skeleton. And often I just ignore it completely but it does it's like a safety net you can go back to it if you if you're in if you're in a difficult place but having said that every single book i've ever written there's been a big crisis about two-thirds of the way through where i think i can't there's, there's no way to finish this and then i ring andrew and ask him what he's doing and i feel so much better by <laughs> Because we encourage each other. We do encourage each other. And yeah, we, you have to. I, I, I plot as well, roughly the same as yeah. I, then it might change a lot. And also, obviously, you have to kind of plot. If you're working with somebody on something like illegal, yeah. if you get a third of the way through and Owen rings me up and says, Andy, when are, we, when are we having the songs in? This is a musical, isn't it? When are we having the songs in? And I say, no, no, I thought this was a Western. This is not a musical. Then you're in some trouble. So you have to have a certain amount of, yeah, yeah, okay, it's going to be roughly like this, but with enough freedom to completely you know but, change uh, it as as you want if you have better ideas i was getting into a bit of a a sludge i suppose would be the word and then i read this terrifying thing about murakami and he said uh, not that i'm comparing joy with anything that murakami wrote but we have the same job 
never mind if the um, outcome is not the same. And he said, I wake up at four o'clock every morning and I write for five or six hours and then I run 10 miles and then I swim 15 miles or maybe I do both. And then I listen to music and read a book and then I go to bed at nine and I do the same thing every day while I'm writing a novel to self-mesmerise. And I, I read this thing and I had a few reactions. I had a spectrum of responses. One was just, well, who the hell is doing your laundry and your cooking and posting your letters and, you know, cleaning up after you. And two, if you can do it, I can bloody well do it. Sorry. Uh, if you can do it, I can do it. So um, for the third joy, I did get up at five and write until 12. Um, yeah, 5 p.m. till midnight suits me. I think that's an <laughs> ideal time to be writing. <laughs> not, not, I, it's not that special. No, it's not that special. <laughs> try, try five in the morning. It's very special. Um, but then also you get your whole... You know, by the time you're really awake, you've got the day to yourself and you've also done quite a lot of writing. And I found that if I work very early in the morning when no one else is using the creative Internet or indeed awake, um, I can make better progress. I make clearer decisions. I am a better thinker in the mornings. So um, that is a, it's not it's I suppose it's not really a process but it's a routine that I have fallen into it's useless when you're at the beginning of coming up with something because you just wake up at five and drink coffee and stare into space and go back to bed again it's not very good but the writing itself it sounds, it sounds brilliant yeah and is I that just, like 90 days or how long would you do that for how many days as long as it takes Owen so that's very strict this was okay. I mean the joy the first draft of the joy but wasn't 90 days Jenny, you should come on our next planning day in the Covent Garden Hotel in London, because believe me, there's, there, you know, we do plan for about a day and a half for every book. And uh, it's fantastic what comes out of I'm that day so and a half. So the that. next time. Yeah, you... Often you can work so hard that the next morning when you get up, I find I've done so much thinking with Owen the night before that I might have a little headache for a bit of the next morning. Yeah. So that's something just to watch out for. It's a little thinky head. Thinky, he's got a bad thinky yeah. head. So, uh, yeah. I'm stunned. Let's talk oh, about this yeah. later. Anne. Listen, I, I, uh, thanks, Jenny. I got I, We all got to go. I have to go. We've all got to go. So. I'm going to press the yeah. leave button. Jenny, thank oh, you so much. You're a, you're a great guest. Thank you. Yeah, bye bye. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Bye. See you soon. It was rubbish, but I loved it. Well, that was fantastic. I imagine you learned a lot there about writing, Andrew. Um, obviously, I knew most of it already, but there were a few things <laughs> I picked up. And now we're moving on to another section. Uh, it was rubbish, but I loved it, uh, where we take something that was on the face of it quite naff, but really worthy of our love. And what is your beloved rubbish this week, Andrew? What my beloved rubbish this week is something that's that survived for kind of fifty years of popular culture in 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 memory and and has probably the greatest theme tune, greatest theme song certainly ever written in the history of film um, and television, and it's Spider Man the nineteen sixty seven cartoons, which are often repeated were were often repeated through the seventies and through the eighties um, when when we would have seen them, and nobody needs to or have a reminder of the theme tune, but here is one. It goes like this. And and that has been used in the modern Marvel universe. I had a marching band um, do it in one of the Spider-Man films recently, and Michael Bublé did a version of it which went like this. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, 
And all of that comes from a really, really awful Marvel cartoon um, in 1967, Spider-Man. Now, this seems incredible for people that are listening to this podcast that have grown up on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is fantastically well-made films, brilliantly cast, brilliantly written, brilliantly directed, with amazing special effects. During the 70s and 80s, if you were a Marvel fan, there was almost nothing. There was almost nothing on TV, nothing in the film. And the Spider-Man cartoons were really, really dodgy 15-minute animations. Um, in my memory, about 50% of the time in any given cartoon was stock footage of him swinging around a city. When I watched them as a little kid in the 70s, even I knew it was stock footage and I knew they would just repeat themselves. And whenever Spider-Man would go, oh, I'd better go to the other side of the city, my five and six-year-old self would go, no, no, don't move, don't change locations, because I knew that it meant 45 seconds of really tedious stock footage of him just swinging against walls. And you could see it was the same wall. It was the same wall every episode, just swinging, swinging, swinging. Like that. And even I would just, no, please don't change locations, Spidey, stay there. And the animation was dreadful. Um, the first series features some proper Spider-Man villains from the comics, and the second and third series, he was fighting like mad monsters underground that was nothing to do with Spider-Man. But just the fact that it was a superhero Marvel thing that was moving on your television screen and it had the best theme tune ever just meant that it, it lives on. It lives on in people's imaginations and it lives on as people's in people's fondness. And kind of steals from it often pop up now on the internet as memes with, with, with stuff over the top of them because it's kind of one of those shows which is embedded in so many different generations childhoods because it was repeated so often and now if you want to catch a look at them you can just look up Spider-Man 1967 on YouTube and there's loads of them for free on YouTube and everybody knows the theme tune. Um, often with these things that stay in our hearts it's an associative thing so was this a very happy time in your life and do you remember where you were uh where, where were you just at home or maybe were you at your nan's house or something yeah i was i would have i would have watched them at home in the 70s at home and spider-man would have come on and i was constantly disappointed i remember just going oh it's a spider-man cartoon and even though i knew it was going to be a continuation of the one last week it'd be the same you know the same series i would sit down and try and watch it and just go oh this animation is awful and oh no he's changing locations they're going to do the stock footage there's the stock footage and it would drive me a little bit bonkers every week but i couldn't give it up because i love marvel comics and i read spider-man comics weekly and i needed a dose of something on tv and every single week it failed to deliver any kind of <laughs> intellectual nourishment or any kind of special effects, or any kind of decent animation. The only thing that was decent about it was the theme tune, which was by, I, I found out today looking up, by a guy called Paul Francis Webster. Webster. Wrote the fantastic lyrics. Webster. Wrote the fantastic lyrics. And he was a three-time Oscar winner. He wrote, he won Oscars for songs written for Hollywood musicals. And the music for it is by Bob Harris, who, who did various incidental music on TV. But the, the lyrics to the Spider-Man, 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 does whatever a spider can, um, was written by a three-time Oscar winner, which is, I guess, why they have stood why they have stood the um, passing of time. So I well. do remember vaguely that it was very two-dimensional. Like there wasn't much in the way of perspective when when he walked, he seemed to walk crab-like sideways uh, across yes. across yes. a flat surface. And when he swung, he would swing sideways. So he was never swinging away from you or swinging towards you. It was always just sideways across the screen. But no, we and he would he would sometimes climb up a wall like of a building that would clearly been shown as three stories high, 
and then get punched off it. And then he would fall down a building that was seemingly 21 stories high because it was just <laughs> easy to repeat the shot where he was falling down. Nice. It's funny that even at that age, uh, you were aware, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> this is terrible. But yes, I will. Oh, I was a picky little sod. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Even at that age, you're just going, that's just stock footage. Yeah. That's not, you haven't done this specially for me for this episode. You're just showing the same wall. That wall was in it last week. That's not but right. There, I suppose young people nowadays would not realise how little there was on TV for us at that time. If you were um, 10 or 11 or whatever we were, um, there was, wasn't really anything. There was programs for little tiny kids and then there was programs for adults but for the anything in between there wasn't a whole lot so you would watch even naff things and uh, i mean top of the pops i think i felt the same about that i loved it but you were 90 percent disappointed because as always popular music is mostly not great uh so as and even though we kind of tend to eulogize the, the 70s and the 80s and the 60s musically if you look back on it you know, it's never that great. Most music is not great. So um, Spider-Man, yeah, I remember watching it and I remember having that fail, same feeling of a disappointment. But still, you would... But still coming back. I would still come back stupidly and foolishly to be slightly disappointed again the next week. Uh, still, I imagine that uh, the listeners to this podcast are feeling pretty much the same. <laughs> you know, they would listen to it last time and say, listen, it was their first or second go. They're going to get better. Well, I'm sorry, listener. This is this is us. This is who we are. This, this is, is just it. Do you think they'll be drawn back in the way that we were drawn back to Spider-Man cartoon in a cycle of permanent hope and disappointment? I think if if they thought you might be pushed off a tall building every week, maybe they would. So, if you wouldn't mind uh, making your way to a tower and just leaping off and falling for a long, long time, and well, just fall forever. Fall forever. That's the thing. You just go down and yeah. down and down against the same window with the same person. Well, we could just out. do a sound effect. Luckily, we they wouldn't have to see it. Just We can just hear the whoosh. So that's my entry for It Was Rubbish, But I Loved It. Spider-Man cartoons from 1967. Amazing theme tune. Terrible storytelling. Terrible animation. Nice. But absolutely loved it. Me too. I agree. 100%. Thank you for your question. Agony Owen will be with you shortly. And now it's time for Agony Owen. Um, we've had some lovely letters in to our... Um, uh, email address doublebookpodcast at aol.com if you have any writing uh, queries writing questions writing issues writing problems that you would like agony owen to give you some advice on then please write in so i'm going to delve straight in with this one from claire from leicestershire claire says dear owen and andrew my brother has been working on various books for about 10 years he is a fantastic writer who builds incredible worlds. He writes sharply and with great humour, but he never manages to finish a book before he's picked holes in the plot and thrown the whole thing out. I write for a living, but I write funding proposals on behalf of charities. I work to deadlines, and although I take real pride in my writing, I believe that finished is better than perfect. I suspect that what separates successful writing from aspiring writers is that they have sent their work out into the world. No one will publish your book if they don't know about it. So her question, Claire's question is, when do you know that your work is done and ready for a wider audience? And she says, thank you for the podcast. I really enjoy listening to writers talk about their craft and the books that have inspired them. So, Owen, when do you know when your work is done and ready for a wider audience? I think you have to accept that you're never going to be 100% happy with your work. And that is a good thing because that what keeps you improving, hopefully, with every novel. So it's very, very natural 
not to be happy and not to be prepared to send it out. And indeed, I was so bad at this that my first editor, or my second editor, sorry, Sarah, the wonderful Sarah Hughes that you know as well, Andrew, I did. eventually had to say to me, we're done. This is done. We are not doing any more with this. It's going out. And even because even now, and you've seen this, Andrew, when I'm reading at a, a book event, I'll be editing what I'm reading. So I'll be reading from my own book. And as I go live, I will be changing sentences that I'm not yet happy with, even if the book has been out for 15 years. So there gets there comes a point where you just have to trust your editor. Uh, but of course, if you're at a stage where you don't yet have an editor, um, that's a different proposition. So what I would say is once you reach a certain point in your work count uh, and your plan is done, you're happy with the plan and you reach a certain count, then you make a deal with yourself that you're going to finish that book. Uh, for me, it's 10,000 words. Once I get over 10,000 words, uh, I'm going to finish. Now, often I'm tempted to stop. The book I'm working on at the moment, um, I was tempted to stop. I'm so glad I didn't because uh, I got to the 10,000 and then I wasn't allowed because I had made a deal with myself. Now, if you have major worries, uh, you just have to fix them. If you have a plot point, fix your plot. It does not mean throw your book away. It means you need to go back and look at the plot. That is the nice thing uh, about writing books. If you have, uh, I think Neil Gaiman said, you can go back at any point and put the murder weapon where you need it to be. Uh, It's not, nothing is written in stone until that book goes goes to the printing press. So I would say to your brother, uh, listen, bro, it is very important to get, I don't know, maybe you're not that familiar with him. You might not call him bro. And I'm taking a bit of a leap there. Once you get to that 10,000 or whatever your personal uh, line is, then you've got to finish that book. So whatever happens, it's finished. And the very art of finishing a book is very cathartic and it gives you the confidence that you are able to finish a book. So even if that book is not the one that gets published, it, it might be the next one. And it took me six books to get published. So I, I wrote six books that weren't published. Uh, but each one I finished, I learned from, and I'm still learning. I think it's very important to finish things, isn't it? When um, uh, when Claire says, but he never manages to finish a book before he's picked holes in it. It's it's when you've got something that's finished, be it good, bad, indifferent, yeah. you've got a finished project which you can improve. When you have a half-built plane that's never going to fly off the runway that that can't fly because it's half-built, you you don't have a finished project, no. and that's a different. That's a different feeling. It I think. is, and it's much easier to throw away something that has, does not have the words "the end" uh, in it. Once you have written the book and you have the first draft, psychologically, it's really hard to throw that book away. So I would say you finish it and then go back and fin- and, and uh, correct it, and try not to try to put those doubts aside until you've got the first draft um, done. And but everyone's journey with a novel is very personal, so it's not a one size fits all plan but for me that works give yourself a limit 10,000 words and after that you're fit you're gonna finish uh, so maybe i hope that helps now our next question is from levy sweeney uh and they say i loved Artemis Fowl when i was a kid it really turned on my imagination and helped inspire me to do my own writing thank you so much for the inspiration your novels provided nothing nothing for me there's just well, i'm sure it's a general nothing. when <laughs> 
When you were writing the Artemis Fowl books, did you do research on organized crime and criminal escapades and the like? I seem to recall a chapter in the Opal Deception where Artemis goes over a list of famous criminals in his head. Were those real famous criminals or did you just make them up? I think I remember that bit. I think they were real famous I think criminals. That, yeah. But how much research on organized crime and criminal escapades, which is a phrase I like, criminal escapades, how much did you do for the Artemis? I think quite a bit. I mean, I think I tried to re research everything um, I was doing because it, I believed and I still believe that if you can uh, leaf, interweave fact and fiction and make it difficult for the audience to know which is which, that they will believe everything. Um, that it all becomes believable. So I really wanted to create a world in which Artemis Fowl could exist and make that world seem as real as possible. And so if I mentioned scientists or science especially, it was usually very real. And then I would just put in Artemis's uh, pseudoscience in the middle and that would also seem real. So if I had Artemis in with a bunch of criminals and I mentioned other criminals, they would usually be real. So it would be difficult for the reader to spot what did not exist in the actual world. And, and that's something that I continue to do. And I use a lot of pop culture references, and I always have, uh, and they're all usually pretty real. But sometimes reality is so fantastical that people don't believe it because it's in Artemis Fowl. And an example of that would be, I remember, I tried to put in, a, as you know, uh, something about the environment or the ecology in every book, you know, make a little point. And uh, in, in book two, I was talking about nuclear submarines that are just lying around in the bay in Murm outside Murmansk in Russia. Uh, and people didn't believe that. They thought, surely there's, they're not just letting uh, nuclear submarines lie around. Um, but they are. And uh, I think um, it's a huge environmental worry that is not really, really talked about. But because it was in a book about leprechauns, nobody... Believe that. Why didn't people take that seriously? I know. I, I realized my mistake quite early on. Ah, it's a, there's a the... fart gag, serious ecological message about nuclear submarines laying on the ocean floor. Fart gag. I don't. When I don't you know say it like that, it sounds pretty obvious that it would not be. But, uh, no, I, I, so I that's why we, we, we kind All of right. have to start. Well, when we're doing our, our graphic novels, it's a completely new, separate series because we want it to be taken seriously so it, i think if we had done it as part of a an artemis Fowl graphic novel it really it would have been wasted so uh so that's what i learned from that but yeah the, the short answer is yes i do um great thank you that's the end of agony owen thank you very much for that and all you all the answers to the questions and if you've got more questions for owen then it's double book podcast at aol.com yeah, thank you very much well we have arrived virtually unscathed at the end of podcast episode three double of double booked uh, but next time please dear listeners tune in for the amazing uh, cressida cowell um, who will be joining us uh, in studio, in her own studio, not our studio, because of, you know, the pandemic. But we'll be talking to Cressida. And uh, Andrew and I, have, and your son, actually, uh, Fisher, is a huge fan of Cressida's, I believe, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a huge fan. Uh, she's a fantastic writer. Uh, the, the, obviously, I'm a How to Train Your Dragon series. And she's, uh, in, in the UK, she's my um, trade union rep at the moment. She is, she is my leader. She's our Captain America because she is a children's laureate. Yeah. Um, a position that you have uh, held very brilliantly and very well in Ireland, but she is she is currently our Captain America. She is our leader in England. Um, I don't know if it worked for you like this when you were children's laureate in Ireland, but in 
England when you're children's lawyer, you can, if you're just walking around, you can knock on the door of any house that you fancy. And if they've got kids in the house, if they've not got kids, it doesn't work. If they've got kids in the house, you can demand an evening meal and they, they have to feed you if you're wow. a children's lawyer. Um, it's great. So, you know, when you're walking home, you're walking down the street and you smell something, someone's got maybe a bacon sarni on, someone's got a nice curry on, someone's got, you say, oh, wouldn't that be great if that was my house? If you're a children's laureate, you just go and knock, Chris, you get it, boom, our children's laureate, you, she's got a little card, they all have little cards, do that, and that's, and that's well, it. Well, over here we had, a, we had so, what was called uh, the potato medal. And you could just have a potato tithe. So you just went in, knocked on the door, held up your medal, and they would have to give you a potato no smaller than that medal. So oh, and, nice. uh, okay. All right. unfortunately, so uh, it would just say deliver. So often it would be delivered straight to your face. <laughs> that wasn't so at least a little <laughs> bit of fine tuning, that particular potato tithe rule. But, uh, you know, we're working on it. Well, there may be something to learn from the free food world. So we can talk to Chris about that next week. We will, we will ask her next night, next, next podcast. We can talk to Chris about that next podcast and see how that's see how that's working out. Absolutely. Double Booked was produced by Owen Colfer and Andrew Donkin and Seamus Redmond. Sound editing by Seamus Redmond. Theme tune by Liam Bates. This has been a Silver Foxes production. Remember, other Silver Foxes are available, although very likely, not as good.